All right. Good morning. Good morning, family. Hey, guys, grab a seat. We're going to get going, guys. And uh, if you haven't, grab your Bible. Uh, open up your Bible to Psalm 77. We've been, we're taking a few weeks this summer to look at the prayers and the songs of the people of God. Today we are in the 77th Psalm. Uh, so our scripture reading is going to be the entire psalm. Please uh, give your attention to the reading of God's word this morning. Psalm 77. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. Selah. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Selah. Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You with your arm redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. Selah. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Let's pray. I'm going to take a, we're going to take a moment just to be silent, let you guys pray uh, to the Lord, and then I'll pray. Father God, we have gathered here to worship you, to lift up your name. We are your people and you are our God. So we need to hear from you today. We've been living all week in our jobs, with our families, with our parents, with our kids and we've forgotten who we are we've forgotten who you are because we're forgetful people we need you to tell us who we are again we need you to tell us who you are again we need you to tell us the truth and shape our soul and that's why we're here today lord i pray god that you would work in every heart and every life today where we haven't gathered just to gather as some kind of social club we've gathered as your church as your covenant people and Lord, I ask that you would do something supernatural today. Lord, and that's exactly what I'm expecting because you are here. Lord, speak through your good and true and life-giving word today. 
Lord, anoint it with the power of your Holy Spirit, that it would be effective. We, we long for you, Lord, and we look forward to what you have for us today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Andy Crouch is an artist, a thinker, an author, culture maker, and a minister of the gospel. And he has a very simple definition of technology, specifically digital technology, and I think that it's, it's spot on. Here's his definition of technology. Easy everywhere. Easy everywhere. Our very humanity has been shaped by our technology. We have been shaped so profoundly by easy everywhere that we don't even know we've been shaped by it. That's how profound we've been shaped by it. Now, what what do we do? Just think about this. What do we do when we don't know the answer to a question? We get out our phone, and we Google it. We Google it. That's kind of new. What do we do when we get lost on the road? We pull up satellite navigation turn-by-turn directions on our phone, right? What, do we, what, what happens when we find a lump or a bump or a rash? We spend an hour on our computer looking at WebMD to see how bad it really might be, right? That's where we go for help. We have been shaped into believing that when we're in trouble, whether it's big or it's small trouble, that we can go to our phone and we can get help. And we expect to get help. Like we come expecting it. We don't come going, maybe this might work or not. Our technology gives us this feeling that we can handle anything that comes our way. We can handle anything that happens to us. Everything that we need to get us out of times of trouble is just inside our pocket. It's easy everywhere we go. But despite what... Uh, Google and Apple would have us believe there isn't an app for everything. There isn't an app for everything. There are some situations that technology cannot help us with. The psalmist calls these things the day of trouble. The day of trouble. What do we do when we are surrounded by trouble and there is no way out? Like, what do we do? How do we respond when we get hit with trouble that requires far more than merely downloading an app or streaming an instructional video from YouTube? Like, what, what do you do? What do we do when we're in that kind of trouble? The psalmist tells us how to respond. He tells us in Psalm 88, in our day of trouble, we must seek the Lord in prayer. We must seek the Lord in prayer. That's kind of our big idea for today that we're going to unpack. Because prayer is something, honestly, that doesn't come natural to us. It is a supernatural activity to pray because we are talking to God. And just like when we are a child, we have to be taught how to speak, we also need God to teach us how to speak, how to pray. And part of the purpose of the Psalms is to instruct us in how we should pray. The Psalms are going to teach us, like, how do you seek the Lord? Thank you for telling me I should seek the Lord. Now, how do I go about doing that? Well, that's what we're talking about today. How do we seek the Lord in prayer? The first thing we notice in the text that that, uh, was read this morning is that we cry aloud in prayer. We cry aloud in prayer. 
Verse 1, and then we'll drop down to verse 4. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. Verse 4, you hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. This is another psalm of Asaph. He begins his prayer to God by crying aloud to God. Isn't that interesting? Asaph's in trouble. He, he didn't get his instant fix. He didn't get his instant help from God. We don't know exactly what the trouble was that was bothering him. What, what we know is that it is, it is distressing him greatly. In fact, he says in verse 4, he is so troubled that he can't even sleep at night. You ever been there? You ever lost sleep over trouble? I have. Here's some things that I just want to pull out of the scripture. I want you to notice about his prayer. His prayer is not internal. His prayer is externalized. His, in, in other words, it has been verbalized. Asaph says that he cries aloud to God. By repeating this phrase, he is emphasizing this point that he wants to make. Prayer is something that we do with our mouths, not just with our minds. And here's something interesting also. Prayer is not verbalized by mere, with mere words. It's not limited just to words. In verse 4, he goes on to say that he is so troubled that he cannot speak. These are wordless prayers. They're moans. Mm. It's a prayer. These are prayers that are prayed through warm tears streaming down his face. You ever prayed those kinds of prayers, family? These are prayers, in other words, they have emotion to them. They have volume to them. Whatever the trouble is, it's gotten to the point where he doesn't have the energy to be dignified in his prayer meeting anymore. He can't, like, he can't do that anymore. He doesn't want to. He is letting what he's feeling on the inside get on the outside of him through prayer. In our times of trouble, God wants us to seek him by crying aloud in prayer. These are the prayers that God hears. These are the prayers that God sees. You can count on it. Now, one of the tragedies of the modern church worship gatherings is that we have almost no songs of lament we have written almost no songs of lament for the people of God to sing in the last 200 years. The only exception to that would be the traditional black church. They have written plenty because of the stuff that they've had to go through. But by and large, we have not written in the last 200 years songs that are sad for the people of God to sing. Clinton McCann, a professor of the Old Testament, makes this stunning observation about the Psalms. I want you to listen to this. He says, quote, the hymns or the songs of praise are outnumbered by prayers, more specifically by prayers of lament or complaint. Most people are surprised to learn this fact because the church in recent years has done a remarkably thorough job of ignoring the Psalms of lament, close quote. And so in this soundtrack series, we're not going to ignore them. We're going to be talking about a few of them. This is one of them. 
He, he goes on to say that not teaching people how to lament or ignoring the place of crying out in worship has a costly psychological and sociological effect on the people of God in the long term. I think that, that he's right on, right on there. I think the reason that we resist crying aloud, I think that the reason that we resist praying with any emotion is that our culture has taught us that showing emotion is a sign of weakness, especially for men. And we've gobbled that up, and we need to push back on that culture. We need to critique that a little bit. The Psalms were critiquing that. Our culture tells us that if you're crying, that, that is a sign that you, that you have weakness. The Bible right here and throughout the scripture says, no, it's a sign of humanness. Very interesting. Well, see, here's what happens if, if, if we become a church, Crossway, if we become a church that does not make room to pray with emotion, we don't make room to sing the sad songs too. Here's, what's, here's what happens. Christians only gather to worship when they're feeling strong and life's going well. And that's the only time they'll come to worship with the people of God. Here's what happens. They stay home when they're sick, they're tired, they're worn out, they're sinning, <laughs> they're depressed, they're angry, they're sad, or doubting God. And that's the short list. And that makes up a lot of our lives, does it not? They'll just stay home. And why? Because we have told them that there is only room for praise here. Guys, this matters. I want you to just think for a second. Just think with me. What kind of effect do you think that kind of church culture has on a believer's life after five years of that, six years of that, seven years of that, eight years of that? What kind of effect do you think that would have on the life of a believer? It leads people to believe that our faith can't handle real life. That the Christian faith can't handle us being a human. So after a while, here are their only options. They either need to be a fake Christian or they need to stop being a Christian so that they can be a human. Do you see that this matters? We need to get this, guys. It is good for us. It is good for us to cry aloud to the Lord. Men, that includes you. That's not for someone else. That's for you. I'm talking to you, okay? It's not only good for our own soul, but for the believers that are around us. Listen, we need to hear you praying, though you doubt God. We need to hear you. We need to hear you pray though you are sad. Pray sad. It's all right. Pray sad. We need to hear you seeking the Lord though you're sick or you're tired or you're angry. You know why? Because it reminds us that our faith in God is for real humans. And so that's why we need you doing that. We need to be participating together. Brothers and sisters, when you are in trouble... Here's what I want to tell you. Employ your emotions. Put them to work. They're not a problem. God gave them to you. Employ your emotions. Don't try to be put together. Don't try to be cute and presentable. It's all right to be a little sloppy. All right? 
It's okay to need God. Seek the Lord by crying aloud to the Lord. Seeking the Lord also means this. It means that we dig up our doubts in prayer. Seeking the Lord means we dig up our doubts in prayer. Let's look at the text here, verses 6 through 9. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. So he goes and goes a little search. He hits a little magnifying glass in the upper right-hand corner of your computer, right? He goes and does a little inventory. Here's what he comes up with. Questions. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Guys, part of seeking the Lord includes digging up our doubts when we pray. That's part of the process. Asaph is moving beyond his emotions that he's experiencing and he's trying to get underneath them. Why is he feeling the way that he's feeling? He's not just venting. He's doing something. He's intentional about this. Where are they really coming from? He digs down inside his heart to find out why he's feeling the way that he's feeling, which leads to, get this, a series of questions about God. Isn't that interesting? These are rhetorical questions, really. He's not so much looking for answers, but expressing doubts about God. Guys, this is what seeking the Lord sounds like. He's been praying and praying and praying, and God has not answered his prayers yet. God has not responded to him yet. He's been trusting God's promises, but it looks like God has not been faithful to his promises. He's not kept his promises. And so here's Asaph's two major doubts in his day of trouble, in his time of trouble. Those questions break down into two categories, all right? Can I really trust that God will help me? And does God really love me? That's what he wants to know. And those are the two main doubts that we have in our day of trouble. Don't we? Am I right? Can I really trust God to help me now? I mean, does he really have the power to change the situation? Does God, like, actually have the ability to do anything about this? We question if he's strong enough, mighty enough, smart enough to give us what we need in our day of trouble. You know, I don't know. I don't know anymore right now. But maybe that's why he's taking so long to answer. This is how we think. Does God really love me? And and you know what? This is really the fundamental doubt, is it not? I mean, this is the doubt under all the doubts. Does God really love me? Does he really care about me and this situation that's happening? I mean, so what if God can help me? Will he help me? That's what I want to know. Because just because he can help me does not necessarily follow that he will help me. I mean, what comfort is God's great power and strength without his unfailing love? It just makes him at best impersonal or at worst scary. I mean, it's kind of like, I hope I I didn't make him mad and he uses all of his power against me. I mean, maybe that's what he's doing. Do you hear the hint of that in that last question? 
when we pray and God delays, this is where our mind goes, doesn't it? Maybe, maybe God hasn't answered me because I've blown it. He's mad at me. Maybe, maybe he can't help me, but he won't because he just doesn't care. He just doesn't care. When we are in trouble and God delays, these doubts set up shop in deep places in our hearts. We know the Sunday school answer to all these doubts, right? Yes, God, yes, you can trust God. And yes, God loves you, right? Be warm, be filled, go on your way, right? <laughs> but what we actually are doing many times is we are applying canned responses to our doubts so that they will shut up. We just don't want to hear them. We just don't want to look at them. It's kind of like wallpapering over a hole in your wall. Don't see it. Not there. Yeah, the wall's there. You just wallpapered over it by applying these canned answers. You haven't thought through them. And you know what that does? Listen, this is important, guys. You know what that does? That actually stops us from seeking God. It arrests the process. It prematurely stops that process. We have answers. Why do we need God? We have answers. Why bother praying? See, it stops. Here's why. Because you are still carrying doubts, and they are getting heavy. That's why. That's why you need to continue to seek the Lord in prayer. Our doubts can become a burden that weighs down our soul while we are waiting for God. And so instead of hanging on to them, instead of putting these little pat answers to them and say, you know what, I'll deal with that, I'll deal with that, boom. Instead of doing that or ignoring them, we need to lay them on the table before God and let God address them. That's his job. Let God address your doubts. Let God deal with that. This is exactly what the apostle Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 5. He says, humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he might exalt you. Isn't that great? You don't have to exalt you. God exalts you. Casting all your anxieties on him. That's your doubts. That's your worries. That's your questions. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Peter was a fisherman, remember? He's a man's man. Goes out to the salty water, fishing. And he gives us this manly picture of giving our cares, giving our questions to God. He's, Peter's saying this, take your deep doubts, take your deep questions, and cast them like a net into an even deeper God. Throw them. Don't hold on to them. Guys, it's rarely the answer to the questions that we need in our day of trouble. Amen? It's really the answer that we need. It's the encounter with God that we need in our time of trouble. Digging up our doubts, casting them onto God, helps us get to that encounter with God. And so we need to look here. How did this casting encounter go for Asaph? Well, let's, let's go back. We're going to look at 9 through 11. So we're going to pick it up at the, at the last two doubting questions that he has, and, then, and we're going to see there's a change that happens in the text. Okay, I want you to see this. This is, this is, this is cool, okay? So has God forgotten to be gracious? Has in his anger shut up his compassions? 
Selah. Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. Verse 11, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. Do you see what just happened there? And see, verse 10 is really difficult to translate. So you grab a different version of the Bible, you're going to get a different translation of that verse. It's, it's really difficult. But regardless of how you translate it, it is the transition point in the psalm. He has these five, this battery of five really big questions, and they're right in the center of the psalm. He's emphasizing that. And then right at verse 10, there's this transition point. Whatever happens, something radical has happened to Asaph between verses 9 and verse 11. He's talking about God, and in verse 11, he starts talking to God. So I want to know, something happened there. His perspective changes right there. And what I think happens is that he encountered God in some small way after he laid out his doubts before God. His questions got him to that encounter with God. He dug up his doubts, and afterwards, his burden lifted a bit. He can start thinking clearly. Isn't that amazing? What are you having a hard time believing about God right now, brothers and sisters? This is how I started an elder meeting about a month or so ago. I came and asked all the elders, I said, what are you having a hard time believing about God today, this week? And we went around and we did it, and then we talked and prayed. It was awesome. So I want to ask that to you. What are you having a hard time believing about God right now? Be honest. What is that? I want you to encourage you not to ignore them and not to try to silence them. Take the doubts that are weighing down your heart and put them before the Lord in words. Put them before the Lord in prayer, maybe in tears. Thirdly, seeking the Lord in our day of trouble means that we remember the Lord's salvation in our prayers. This is great, guys. Look at verses 19 and 20. He says, your way was through the Red Sea, or through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. 20, you led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. So having expressed emotion by crying aloud to the Lord and laying the doubts of his hearts before God, Asaph now is in a place where he can move to remembering. Now he can be there. And he's remembering who God is and what God has done. Asaph reminds himself of God's greatest act of rescue at that time in history, the Exodus. The Exodus was where God saved his people from an impossible situation through an improbable solution. That's what happened. God saved his people in a way that nobody could have possibly imagined. His way of escape was by a road, was by a path through the Red Sea. Through the Red Sea. Didn't see that one coming, did you? Couldn't plan for that one, right? I mean, that is a powerful dem the demonstration of power. What a powerful salvation. Not only that, but the Exodus showed off God's great love for his people. It, the text says that he, he led them like a shepherd leads his flock. It says by taking them by the hand. Take them by the hand. But there's some, some tenderness in those words. Do you hear it? There's some gentleness there. 
the Exodus event revealed for all to see not only God's power, but also his love and his care for his people at the exact same time. Both of those things were happening at the same time. See, uh, we, we don't know what was troubling Asaph. And you know why? That wasn't his biggest threat. His biggest threat was disbelieving God in his time of trouble. That was his biggest threat which is why the Exodus event is so helpful. It answers both the, the doubt of can I trust God can save me and, and does God really love me with a resounding yes to both those questions. And we have a similar hope today through the cross of Christ. You see, as wonderful as the Exodus was, God's people still needed to be saved again and again because they were tempted to follow false gods for help in their day of trouble. They needed to be rescued from spiritual slavery, not just Egyptian slavery, which is what we all need, by the way. Every one of us. When we pray and God delays, we are tempted to disbelieve God and trust other saviors, like money, like power, like technology. Those things promise us freedom, but they only enslave us and exercise power over us. What we need most is for our hearts to be rescued from disbelief in God in our day of trouble. Because that's our biggest threat. Amen? We need our hearts to be rescued from forgetting our God and walking away from Him in our day of trouble. That is a far more difficult thing to be rescued from, which is why it requires a bigger display of God's love and God's power. And God has rescued us from this lure of disbelief by showing his great love and his great power for us in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. May his name forever be praised. Jesus is the way of life we could have never imagined. And Jesus is the shepherd who loved us enough to die for us. Jesus himself said it in John chapter 10. He says, I am the door. I'm the way. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, anybody walks through me, anyone goes down me, I'm the path. Anybody enters by me, he will be saved and he will go in and out and find pasture. Verse 11, he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. When you are in your day of trouble, and you may be there today, when you've been praying and God has been delaying, how do you know that you can trust him? Like, how do you know that? I know you know that, but how do you know that you can trust him? In, in other words, how do you know that he is a door and not a dead end? How? How? How do you know? How do you know that he truly loves you? The answer is the same for both questions, brothers and sisters. Look at the cross of Christ. The cross is the proof. It is the visible historical evidence that God has the power to rescue us and that God deeply loves us at the same time. We must remind ourselves of that great act of salvation that God has performed for us, for our Benefit through his son. We need to sing about it again, speak about it again, read about it again, talk with other believers again about it while you're at lunch. You need to do this. 
whatever it takes to remind yourself about it. Here is our true comfort. Regardless of what happens to us in the present moment, regardless of how that answer comes out, our Lord has already rescued us from our greatest threat by showing us how much he really loves us in his son, Jesus Christ. He's a good God, is he not? I love you. I want to pray for you, okay? Mm, Jesus. Teach us how to pray. Teach us how to worship. Teach us how to do these things in a way that's good for our soul. It's good for us. It doesn't matter if we like it or not. Is it good for us? Is it healthy? Is it healthy for our church? Is it healthy for our brothers and sisters? Lord, teach us how to pray. Teach us how to worship. Teach us how to be honest. In light of your great mercy, in light of your great grace, thank you for saving us. Thank you for saving us from a great threat. We are fast bound and slave to you. Oh, thank you, Jesus, for showing us your great love and showing us your great power to save. God, I pray that you would point our eyes towards you now, that we would receive that by faith, that we would walk in that and live in that by faith today. You're so good, Jesus. You're so good to us. We love you. Would you please shape us and change our lives? In your name we pray, amen.